So, here we are, April the 29th, 2018, lecture discussion number 21 on the book of Joel. I have to bring something because I don't know how it's going to affect me. The other day, can't remember now exactly what day, but I think it was Tuesday, you'd have to ask. Lori, um, I, um, I was down on my hands and knees putting a small piece of trim in, and I was frustrated because I can't see. I have my glasses off. It was, I cut it a sixteenth of an inch too big, which, and it's a prom, a prominent piece there. It's, I have rounded corners that we put in, um, a while back, and so I'm cutting those little pieces. 22 and a half inch, one inch pieces, or 22 and a half degree, one inch pieces, and and it was wrong, and I'm frustrated, and so I respond in a rapid manner, which is not something I should do. And I stood up, and I slammed my head into. I tried to fit. I'm six foot five, as you know. <laughs> Aubrey, if you were here, if it's on video, Aubrey, all of this is has been reduced in size to make me look smaller, much like Alan Ladd. Is anybody? Yeah. Two people know who Alan Ladd is. Okay. R. Sylvester Stallone. These are little short guys. Tom Cruise. Uh, these are these are tiny little men pretending to be tall. We're doing pretty much the same thing. But anyway, I put my 6'5 frame into a five-foot opening with as much physical force as I possibly could generate. And I tried to lift my house with my with the top of my head and literally knocked myself silly. So it took me a while to figure out how badly injured I was. It took me, I, I just kept going. I, I thought I was just frustrated. And, but over the next day or so, I began to have really great difficulty in reading. I couldn't read, and I can't watch a computer screen, for example, and I had trouble reading what I'm writing, and I'm having trouble seeing it now. So we'll see how that goes. As I'm getting older, I'm getting clumsier. And there's just nothing I can do about it. Okay, so I'll be putting my glasses on or off, on and off, trying to read whoever this idiot is that wrote this stuff here. It's getting tougher. Uh, but by now, so here we go, try it again. By now, it should be evident that the book of Joel uh, leads its readers into multiple paths. It'll lead you to Revelation. Let me flip this over. Somebody bought me another white-blue shirt that has no pocket. I have two of them now. It should be illegal. Okay. Here is my Revelation 117.19, which is a Joel 3 component, if you will. But it should be, you should now recognize, I hope you do, I hope I'm doing my job, that any study of Joel is going to send you into multiple past directions. It's sending you to Revelation. It's sending you to 1 Corinthians 15, which you know, I hope you do, that that is a first fruits uh, structure there, the feast day of first fruits. So Joel and first fruits are interwoven. It'll send you to Psalm 22:18, where the casting of lots is explained. Why did the Romans cast lots for his garments? What is this casting of lots? Joel has that for you there. Uh, Romans 10, 10 through 13, Zechariah and Joel are almost the same. Acts 2, 16 through 21, Matthew 25, 31 through 46, the sheep and the goats, 
So I've got sheep and goats and casting lots and sun and moon, a book of Isaiah, plowshares and pruning hooks. They're opposite of what Zechariah says, and that opposition uh, is very important. The blowing of ram's horns uh, or trumpets in Joel, they're actually a ram's horn. That, of course, gets you to the ram in the thicket with Abraham and Isaac. I have the angels in churches of Revelation, Hades and death, first and last, all of this stuff that's on the board, first and last is a Genesis 1, the keys to Hades and death, time and death, the Alpha and the Omega, again, Genesis 1, all in all, God will be all in all. The fact that Christ saves and destroys all the time the church emphasizes on his salvation, his mercy, he also destroys, it's judgment. What does he mean by destroy? Uh, what does he mean by salvation? The former rain and the latter rain, new wine and oil. And then behold, in those days and at that time, which is Joel 3, it's not on the board here. But in those days and at that time, that is amazing, that verse. I can't do it. Uh, any justice, I won't be able to, but I'm going to give a run at it today. And the great and awesome day of the Lord. Just to name, that's not in any particular order for those of you who, who correct me on the internet, and I'm grateful that you do so most of the time. <laughs> uh, but they're not in any particular order there. I just threw out a few subjects that flow through the three chapters of Joel, and I'm not even close. There's another list that size, if not five more. So these three chapters of Joel and and some other passages and books that address these topics as well are just amazing. It's just so much information, it's impossible to even begin to complete it. And it's three, five pages, three chapters. And the point being, yea, a point... Three chapters, five pages in a book of prophecy reach across the entire Bible. Boom. Both directions. And immediately you should ask, is there any other book that does this? Can I help you? The answer is no. No one can write a book like this. No one can design one like this. And as you know, every chapter of every book of Scripture is the same. All of them just go everywhere. There is no simplicity. Now, some disagree with that. They, they do not think that that is the case of every book of Scripture. And they would be in error. I, most often, the one that I'm given is Titus. So I thought I'd bring that to you. They say, well, Titus, I know what Titus said. I got Titus all wrapped up. Doesn't go anywhere. It's just a simple little letter that Paul wrote. No big deal. Your mother, of course, would disagree. Having the last name of Titus, she would know. I used to call her mother, her mother. I shouldn't say this because I'd have to... I can't do it because it'll go on the Internet and then they'll hunt her down and then they'll find her. And that's big problems. So I can't do it. But I would say what I called her when she was 12 years old. That's why she hated. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And 
she's vengeful, as you know, and so we've been we've been at this for fifty years. <laughs> anyway, being a professional, Titus. People think Titus is easy. Titus goes back to Genesis three and forward to Revelation nineteen. Every book in the Bible does it. You just have to be able to see it. Paul, for example, in Titus 3, emphasizes, maybe Titus 1, I'm not sure, I don't want to look it up. Paul emphasizes salvation as according to the mercy of Jesus Christ. He says salvation is merciful. It's mercy. It's kindness and love, not by works which we have done. There you go. Just that alone. Salvation by mercy. Why? Why is it salvation by mercy? Why is it not by anything that we have done? He says to avoid contentions and striving about the law. So something's going on with Titus with respect to where he is that has to do with the Mosaic law, which is the Levitical ceremonies, which is the Torah, frankly. Not just the Pentateuch. We have been justified by the grace of Christ. Again, why is it mercy? Why isn't it something more compounded? As you know, most churches today do not say this. They don't say that you are justified, you are saved by love, by mercy, by the grace of Christ. They say that it is some composition. It is love or grace or mercy plus work, something that you do, which is a profound error and impossible, frankly. All you can do is start mathematically evaluating it. How much work do you have to do to be saved? How much is salvation worth? How do you pay for it? Titus 3 is years of study. Titus chapter 2, everyone avoids Titus chapter 2. It's my favorite, therefore, isn't it? Have you ever heard a sermon on Titus chapter 2? Well, as soon as I see that no one wants to talk about it, then I want to talk about it all the time. It's got it's an enticement. I want to know why does the church hide from Titus two? Because they do. I'll bet you you haven't heard a sermon. You certainly haven't heard a sermon in the big church, a little tiny church maybe, not in the big ones. Titus chapter two admonishes the young women. What's the first question? Why not the old women? Titus chapter 2 says to the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Let me repeat that. Now, most of the... (laughs) I look around, I can just... It's fantastic to see the response to that. You want Bill to do what now? You want to hit him again? (laughs) That's exactly why. (laughs) That's exactly why no one talks about this. Let me repeat it. Admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste homemakers, good, obedient to their own husband, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. That is as complicated a paragraph as you can find in the New Testament. And everybody thinks it's simple. Everybody does. As soon as I read it, I get the same reaction every time. It's hilarious. But I know it's misunderstood. What is that? 
Oh, oh, it, this, wait till I get to the old women. It's, it's, it's fantastic. There's not too many seeker sensitive fuzzy wuzzy churches that want to take this on. They're fearful that the women will just get up and leave like the kids do. Whoa, they'll just disappear. And there'll be fist fights and, and food fights and everything else. Oh, that absolutely there is. Why is there this age issue? Titus 2, 1 through 5, since the student of Scripture, it connects to 1 Timothy 5, 14 and 16. Let me read that. It's just as much fun. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside to Satan. Try that on a Sunday. I, I would love to watch. I really would. It'd be my. Fa- I would go to whatever church is taking this on just for the entertainment value. It's not going to happen. I know why. I know they don't do it because they don't know what it really means, and they're going to take it in a direction that will not be true, and it'll be a big mess. So instead of finding out what it means, recognizing that it, like every other book of the Bible, is going in both directions, they just fail. And if you think, sitting here, you have a full understanding of Titus 2 and 1 Timothy 5, I'm going to ask you to reconsider. I don't think you do. If you do, fantastic. But I know the math on this. Obviously, when I'm talking about a younger woman and that she should love her husband, love their children to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that's that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Where am I in the Bible? If I say, desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to Satan, for some have already turned aside to Satan. Where am I in the Bible? It's obviously a Genesis 3 reference. No question about it. How does it fit with Genesis 3? Ask a few easy questions. What were these younger women doing? Hating their husbands? Because he says love their husbands. So are they doing that? They're hating their husbands. Why? They're hating their children. Why are they doing that? What's the condition of this country today? Obedient to their husband. He says, be obedient to your husbands. In what? Specifically what? Exactly what? Heresy? Blasphemy? Is that the issue? Are the wives hating their husbands, hating their children, and descending into heresy and blasphemy? If they are, what's happening here? How were these young women blaspheming God? Why were they blaspheming God? The implications for the older women, I didn't get to that yet, but now I will. If you read the context, I don't have a chance to do it today because who knows how far I'll get before I collapse in a heap. The implication for the older women is that they're all drunks. And it gets worse. The greedy, the elders are greedy, lying cheats, Titus 1.10. Violent drunks, Titus 1 7. 
what kind of mess is this church that Titus is at? Because Paul is writing to Titus, and it looks like things aren't going well. Or it's exactly like the church today, one or the other. <laughs> Which it could easily be. Church today is descending quickly. What kind of mess is this church that Titus found himself at? Some think that it's Corinth. And some propose Crete. And you're, of course, familiar with Crete. Crete is the root word or the root of what? Cretan. Crete has a reputation. Why are they like this? What's Titus trying to do here? It isn't going well. I'm fascinated by this movement in the last 70, 85 years of recent history to use the Corinthian church as an example to emulate took root about 1925, and it's kept going. We want to be just like the Corinthian church. That's what they say. I would suggest that you study the, the condition of the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was a mixture of paganism and vile, absolute vile sexual immorality. So when you're reading the books of Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, pay attention to what's going on in that church. And just as you read Titus, pay attention to what's going on in the Cretan church. So the Corinthians, as I said, tremendous influence of paganism. They brought all these pagan rituals in. What are the most prominent pagan rituals? Who do you suppose they're sexually immoral with? And that's on their good days. So do not use them as an example. They are a rebuke, a reproach. Crete was not much better. I'd describe it as a dumpster filled with tires and diapers and lit on fire. That's, that's the Crete church. Pretty much covers it. The point is, yay, another point. The book of Titus is filled with Old Testament references. It'll send you everywhere. It's amazing. Just solving the Jewish fables and commandments, Titus 1.14. And I'll send you to Isaiah 29. That is a long, long journey. Give no heed to Jewish fables. What Jewish fables do you think they have there? Where did the Jewish fables come from? Who is asking the people of Crete, if it's the Crete or the Corinthian church, who is asking them to heed the Jewish fables? What is the difference between the wife of YHVH and the bride of Christ? That is the book of Titus. Pack a lunch. And I've been told also that Philemon is easy. My, my commentator, I, I could read it, I just wrote it down. Here's what my commentator of my particular Bible that I have because it's, it's the New King James and it's large print. That's the reason I've got it, not for the commentator. He says this, there are no significant interpretive challenges in Philemon. Oops. That is brain damage. And I know something about brain damage. I've become an expert. It'll be readily apparent here in about 20 minutes. You know what staves off brain damage, of course, don't you? That's right. Aspartame. There are no significant interpretive challenges in Philemon. Really? Just look at verse 3 in your spare time. I should read that. Good grief. Let's do that. 
I was not going to do it, but now I'm getting mad. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's that? It's a hypostatic union. That is the greatest mystery in the Bible. So you got verse 3. There's no interpretive challenges because there's the hypostatic union smacking you in the head. Again, I know something about being smacked in the head. Paul, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now that's interesting. Why did he say that? He says it twice. He says it over here in verse 9. Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Christ is holding him prisoner? I thought the Romans were holding him prisoner. Why does he say that? Just in case you didn't get it, he repeats it. No interpretive challenges? Easy? Philemon contains the issue of Old Testament slavery. As the Jews would define slavery and therefore as God defines slavery. God has a definition of slavery that is different than what you might think. It is a typical or a symbolic term. Figuring out slavery is a lifetime. So try to resist any and all impulses to think you have mastered any part of the Bible. George Washington Carver, my favorite scientist, had the peanut. And a peanut is a piece of pie, easy as cake. Relatively elementary. The word of God is infinite. He spent his life getting gasoline out of the peanut, among other things. Okay, rant is over. We find ourselves remaining. That's what I'm trying to get you to do here. This is extraordinary. Joel 3 is extraordinary. Keep in mind how things interconnect Nothing else does this. It is whoever wrote this book also designed the human body, also designed the ecology, also designed the weather system. Everything that is tied together and interdependent, he did it. And now you can see evidence of it, why you can figure out it's his word. It teaches us about himself, about Christ. It pictures Christ everywhere and it interconnects in a way that is inexplicable. So we have this list of components now on Revelation 1, 17 and 19. That's what we're working our way through. And we're buried in the avalanche of Revelation 1, which is an avalanche. Chapter 1 is the Alpha, Omega, first and last. Where is it over here somewhere? I don't see it. It's got to be here. No Alpha, Omega? Should be here. Ooh. For a second there, I wasn't sure the board was moving. Alpha Omega. I am the first, the Alpha Omega and the first and the last. Revelation 1, 8, 1, 11. Clearly, that is a time citation. What I mean by that is a time sourcing. What I mean by that is 
that I am the first and the last. I am the beginning. The beginning and the end, as most would see that. That is Christ saying that he is the beginning of time and the end of time. He is before time and after time, which our little tiny finite minds cannot possibly comprehend what he is saying here. We can just get somewhat in the general area, especially so being subject to time, inside of time as we are. For us to understand being outside of time is extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible. We can kind of get a little tiny bit of it. That's the best we can do. We can see dimly. But that's what Christ is doing here. He's making a time reference. I am the Alpha and the Omega, and I am the first and I am the last. So um, we know that Christ created time, installed time, instituted time, and that it is a foundation of his creation. And, and so our challenge is we're not going to know how he does it necessarily. Maybe we'll get close someday in some regard, in some small way. But at least we could try to know why he did it, and that's the plan. Joel 3.1, again, has this great statement, Behold, in those days and at that time... There lies a great truth there, a behold for sure. As you know, as you saw earlier, I'm fond of asking the grandchildren questions. It's my way of tormenting them. I asked a little Aubrey Rose a while back. Um, and, and she responds the same way, but I asked her, uh, what is fire made of? And which is actually, ultimately, a question about the structure of the sun. It is ionized plasma, not to be confused with blood plasma, solid, liquid, gas, plasma, the four states of matter. That's what I'm asking the four-year-old, because she's four. Works out. And Aubrey, being four, has already learned to ignore me completely. It's, it's amazing how quick that happened. I had maybe five or six weeks of influence, and then I was completely cut off. But this time, for about ten seconds, because she's seen fire, and I knew she had, and you've seen fire. Let me ask you again. What is fire made of? How much does fire weigh? For about ten seconds, I had her deeply thinking, and that's delightful to watch a four-year-old almost. Well, she's like, how old? When's she five? Who remembers? Okay, good. We're, I wasn't there. Okay, I was there. It went on for days. I made six trips to the hospital. The most miserable week of my life. <laughs> Did she ever listen, Anna, to these lectures ever? Oh, good. Good, I'm safe. Oh, no. <laughs> Caught again. <laughs> You're supposed to be in the nursery. Don't you have a baby? Oh, crud. I thought I escaped completely. Well, remember, I'm brain damaged. I'm going to. If you get. Say that again. Oh, I don't remember that. Oh, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. She's learned that to, to to respond. I asked her why is the sky blue, and how does she know that the sky is blue? Because that, of course, is a mental process. The color recognition of color is not physical; it's mental. 
we assign color to it, and I think it's blue, and you think it's blue, but do we have the same blue? And I was saying, that's where I was headed. And how do you smell? Where does smell? Where does touch originate? And how does it work in the brain chemistry system? And anyway, she said, God made it that way, which is her way now of saying, shut up, Grandpa. <laughs> but I had her pondering now for... Ten seconds, and that's what my intention is, and she's there deep in thought, and she's just thinking, what is fire made of? And I know I got her fish on, right? And I was about to launch into electromagnetic fields and their effects on neutral gases, and when she answered her now popular refrain, are you kidding me, Grandpa? That's what she said. Are you kidding me, Grandpa? That's her favorite new response to Grandpa. And the answer is yes and no. I was kidding her, but the study of plasma is extraordinary proof of creation. Especially so is the physics and the chemistry of the sun, how the sun works. It should not work like it's working. How's it doing it? Bill brought up uh, the New Jerusalem, Bill the cow, in the beginning. The New Jerusalem is going to descend down. As Bill pointed out, people want to argue over how much it weighs. Well, does it land on the earth? How does it go down? How does it, what moves it? What power source is controlling this incredible structure? Uh, So you, you, but the sun is an example of an unexplained device. And God has installed the Son. It is a type of Christ. It testifies of Christ. But other other aspect of it, I'm going to flip this over now. The other aspect of the Son and the Moon, both of them, is they are timepieces. They're keeping time. So he lets you know right there that he wants to keep time. That's God's plan. He's built his plan of salvation upon time. His timing is of a profound importance. And that is Joel 3.1 and Revelation 1.8 and 1.18 all over Revelation. That said, Revelation 1.8 increases in mystery. It's an extraordinarily mysterious verse. Uh, let me read it to you again. So I have it in the forefront. I am... You see, I am. Now, this, of course, is John quoting Christ. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The first who is and who was, I brought this up a while back, was. Jesus Christ says was. You've got to be kidding me, Grandpa. What in the world does this is the living God, the I am, the I am says, I was. That does not work. But there it is. I am who was. I left out a few verses or a few few words. What does that mean? And Christ repeats, I am the Alpha and the Omega in Revelation 21.6 and 22.3. And so we're going to have to take all the places where he says he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. 
we're going to have to figure out what he means by that. So put them all side by side, if you will. He says, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega. It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give you Give of, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. And that's what's important there is it is finished. So he takes this phrase alpha and omega beginning and end and he adds it is finished. He adds water of life. I will give to all who thirst. So uh, freely to him who thirsts. The implication is is that some will not thirst. So we get more f- information. This it is finished. What's finished? How often? Uh, let me put it this way. A L- long time ago, you might remember. I hope you do. Some of you uh, w- weren't here. I did a lecture on how many times Christ has said it is finished. The most famous one, of course, is from the cross. He says it is finished in Revelation 21.6. He says it in Revelation 16.17. Let me put those on the board for the Internet audience. Uh, Revelation 21.6. John, that's the crucifixion. 19.30. And then I'm going to tell you that it is Genesis 1 1 and 2 1. 2 1 is the first place in Scripture that God says finished. First mention of finished, if you will. Something is finished in these four places, and it relates to time and saving the water of life. What's water made of? Uh, hydrogen and oxygen. Is hydrogen wet? Oxygen wet? Water wet? How do you know? How do you define wet? What's this water of life? Is there an inverse? If I have a water of life, do I have a water of death? We could do this for a long time, can't we? I'm going to read Revelation 21, 6 through 8 now. He said to me, it is done. That is the fourth. Revelation 21.6 is the fourth. It is finished. Am I right about this? Yes. It is done. It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the fearful, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexual, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Excuse me. So you see here, if I had this 
flipped over. Remember that place where I said save and destroy from last week? You see him talking about salvation and destruction again. James 4.12, Hebrews 7.25, Matthew 10.28. He is the one who saves. He's also the one that sends people to destruction. It's important to know that. But notice for today this inclusion of unbelieving. But the fearful unbelieving that abominable snowman, abominable murderers, sexually immoral. He has this list. Christ has a list. I'd like to point that out. That's right. Thank you. <laughs> One person laughed and the other person admitted it was a pretty good point. That's what we call a win here. Dave told me yesterday when he found out that I was brain damaged, he said, you might be funny tomorrow because you're really good when you're rummy. And I am as rummy as I've ever been. I took my neck and shrunk it to about this size. That's what I did for about two and a half seconds. And now it is trying to go back as an accordion where it belonged. And it isn't working well. And every now and then it reminds me because I will do this. And I'll go, oh, so I get dizzy now, a lot. How much time do I have, doctor? Two more minutes? How much time do I have? Wouldn't that, if you're going to Christopher for bedside manner, don't make that mistake. <laughs> he will say, amputate or you have two minutes to live. That's how he went. <laughs> How much? Okay, I'm rolling here. Notice this inclusion of unbelieving in this list of Christ. Unbelief is evil. He declares it to be evil. If you say, I don't believe Christ, that's an act of evil. Make no mistake about this. But there's questions here. What is it that they don't believe about him? You really have two choices. I'll boil it down for you. Do they not believe that he is God or do they not believe that he is good? This is at the end of Revelation. This is the great white throne judgment. Is there anybody you think, including uh, angelic beings, that do not believe that Jesus Christ is God now? It's the end of the millennium. All things made new. It's the new Jerusalem. The cities come down. Who doesn't believe he's God? Everybody believes he's God. So what's left? And by, by the way, I know I started it and I have to finish it. Who did they murder? What lie? Where do we put the commas in this sentence? Remember, there's no commas. But to the fearful comma or to the fearful unbelieving? Is it? To the abominable, or is it to the abominable murderers? It's sexually immoral. I didn't put a comma between there. Remember, no commas. You get to put the commas. Figure out whether or not the commas belong or where do they go. What are nouns and what are adjectives? 
Okay, can't get distracted. Is there a difference between the Alpha and the Omega? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Here he says the beginning and the end. Is there a difference between the Alpha and the Omega and the beginning and the end? What is the difference? Is it the same thing? Is he just repeating himself over and over and over again? Because he doesn't think about it. He just, you know, it's a figure of speech from God. Just throw it out there because I like to make lots of words. Does every word have a meaning and a purpose and is greatly significant? You decide. So what's the difference now that you've decided between the Alpha and the Omega and the beginning and the end? Well, Alpha and Omega is what? It's Greek. What is it Greek specifically? It's an alphabet. So he's saying, I'm the Greek alphabet? Probably not, but he says he's an alphabet. Beginning and end is what? It's time. Beginning tells you it's time. And it is finished is the fourth it is finished. Um, and let me put that, what else was finished? If I'm right, then he finished the creation. Of the organic structures, the physical creation. So that would be organic physical creation versus mineral. It is finished, is on the cross. So he finishes his sacrificial crucifixion, the cup of sin, if you want to think of it that way. This is the wrath of God. He finishes the wrath and the tribulation. At the third it is finished. And this is the judgment, the great white throne. So those are the four things that he finishes. You can argue with me later. Now, add into those four the first and the last letters of the alphabet. Because it's all put together. The alpha and the omega, as I said, are Greek. It is not what he would commonly use. He could speak Greek people. But you have the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and the last Greek letters. The corresponding uh, Hebrew would be the Aleph. Sometimes F. I don't do that. I put PH and the top. So that would be the Hebrew. And as you know, the Alpha is, devi- is derived, I'm sorry, derived from the Hebrew. Alpha and Aleph, you can see the relationship there. It goes Aleph, Bet, Gimal, and Dalet, A, B, C, D. And the Greek is Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta. The exact same lettering of those words. They are derived, derivative from the Hebrew. I want you to note the similarity. So the likelihood here is that Christ spoke Hebrew. I am the Aleph and the Tav. I think that's the strongest position. And so I don't think that it can be disputed very easily. So I recommend that you assume that it is the case. Because if you do, it opens up for you. The Hebrew letters have meanings that correspond, significant meanings. The meanings correspond to the letters. They have a gematria. They have a numerical value. Without turning this into a Hebrew class, I, don't, I lack the qualifications to do that. 
for today, I'll just put forth the general accepted scholarship, keep, uh, keeping in mind that the Hebrew experts don't agree here. So you're on your own is my way. I'm not your attorney. Good luck. Aleph is the symbol of oneness. It's gematria is one, is the number one. The numerical value is one. It's oneness. It is unity. He's saying, I am one. I am the one. And Aleph connotes greatness first. It's, it's first in order. It's power. And it's also God. So he is saying, I am the Aleph, which is saying, I am the I am. Is that familiar? It's Exodus 3, right? I am God. For those who think that he never says that, he always says that. We're just too dumb to figure out where he's saying it. Tav corresponds to covenant, to kingdom. There's an ancient of days aspect to Tav. Aleph and Tav with mim, and another Hebrew word, me is God and blood and covenant. And that forms the word truth in the Hebrew. First, middle, and last, for those of you who like numerical puzzles, forms truth. And all of these and much, much more will lead to the incomparable claim that Christ makes here. He makes it three times. He is stating his embodiment, his incorporation of all existence, all, all, um, all of existence and me, he's saying, have this intrinsic uh, con connectivity. Everything that exists, all of reality, all power, both physical and spiritual, all that is known is contained in Jesus Christ. And Christ says this three times in the New Testament. Revelation 1.11, 21.6, and 22.13. John quotes him in Revelation 1.8. And it is also said in the Old Testament three times. Isaiah 41.4, 44.6, and 48.12. First and last. Okay, to repeat the question, Alpha and Omega, or in this case, Aleph and Tav, what is the difference between that and first and last? Well, the Aleph and Tav is about existence, all of existence. First and last is all of time. And some might think there, that's a distinction without a difference. Uh, obviously, I've separated them out because I think they demand that. First and last describes time as being contained in Christ. Time, therefore, is in Christ. Christ is in all things that exist. Does that make sense? And again, I recognize that that might seem like the same thing or cycle babble. But we're, we're battling a great mystery here. It's going to take a little bit. But I'm going to submit to you first and last is connected to life and death. Revelation 1.18. He says it. Let me read it to you. I am the first and last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys to Hades and death. So first and last, death, death. Got you back there. 
Therefore, there, there appears to be this connection to time and death. I am he who lives and was dead. Was is a time reference that God is using. And that really, as I said, how do we explain was when God says it? Hades is a place. Death is a condition, a state. Those in Hades are dead. Christ is the one who saves and destroys, who decides the dead, who decides the living. And I might suggest identifies those who are dead and identifies those who are living. So how is time impacting death or death affecting time? I said a couple weeks ago, there's a relationship between death and time. He gave us time. How is it again that time is impacting death or death impacting time? Time is a numerical ordering system by which we observe material change. You might also remember, I hope, that scientists, physicists, Minkowski especially, melded space and time. He looked at space and he said, what is space, Aubrey Rose? What is it? How much does space weigh? Where is space? Do you have space? Do you need space? Are you a little spacey, maybe? Am I? Obviously. But physicists have made space-time. They see time and space as conjoined. They call it the space-time continuum. In physical reality, they, they will tell you, can be explained by three dimensions and time. So the three dimensions of space, you know what the three dimensions are. You know what three-dimensional means. They take the three dimensions and they add to it time. And they get what they call the four dimensions. 3D plus T, it's called. And that concept, however, is hotly debated. It's not... For certain, there's a battle going on. For today, just be aware that time is either only a numerical ordering device or it is something far more than that. Also notice that mathematics, what is mathematics? Is How much does mathematics weigh? Anybody carrying around 25 pounds of math? Mathematics is not physical. And so it has a relationship to time. And I keep saying that time has a numerical element to it. Numbering. Math is very much the same. It's not physical. More on this to, to deal with. I'm just trying to get you to recognize where we're headed here so that you never come back. Anyway, time and death. Where can I go in Scripture to find this relationship between time and death? Raise your hands. Never raise your hands here. If you know where we will go, where will we go? Where is the, the scripture that says time and death? You'll see books out there all over the place. Philosophy, scientific books now being written. And the, and the titles are time and death. Where do they get it from? They get it from the Bible. It is in Ecclesiastes, as you know. We did Ecclesiastes years ago. Both of the people that went to that class were really, really thrilled with it. 
I hope it was more than that now in hindsight, but who knows. Ecclesiastes 3. My goodness, does, does Ecclesiastes 3 ever get messed up just as an aside in the church? They really, really mess up. Let me find it for you so you know this. Talking about who knows the spirit of sons of men which goes upwards and the spirit of the animal which goes down to the earth. That I hardly ever hear anybody get that right. It is uh, horrifically butchered. It's a rhetorical question. It means that no one knows what it says in fact is, is that the spirit of animals is the same as the spirit of man. I don't have time to do that today, but I just want you to know it because it's in Ecclesiastes 3. They're living souls. You need to know that. Okay, here we go. To everything there is a season, which means duration. To everything there is a duration, a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down. A time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away shoes, a time to gather stones, or I'm sorry, cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear, to tear or to tear, I'm sorry, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. As Solomon, the Holy Spirit through Solomon, Solomon figured out time. What's that? Oh, it's also a song. That's correct. From the 1960s. You, you dated yourself right there, didn't you? <laughs> the Internet audience will go, what kind of people come to this church? You, you don't want to know. We don't film, film the audience to protect them. <coughs> Solomon understood this, perhaps the wisest man that ever lived outside of Adam. He prayed for wisdom and he got time. He was extraordinary. He also got botany, biology. He was world-renowned for his understanding of botany, the genetics of plants. Solomon thought about it and figured it out. By purpose, Solomon says, uh, a time for every purpose. He meant willful. Every deliberate thought. Every desire. There's a time for that. Each willful thought and act has a point in time and has a duration to it. Solomon then lists these 28. There are 14 pairs of opposites. Those are sevens, aren't they? Two sevens of opposites. This gives you a completeness, a totality. Birth and death begin Solomon's list. A time to, to be alive and a time to die. He put time and death together. That's extraordinary. We have no control over our birth. Would you all admit that, Cody? No control. Anybody that thinks he had control, don't raise your hand here. Some think they have control over their deaths and the deaths of others. But God is, is the one who ultimately governs, who controls. He's the one who appoints the time. You may think that you have interfered with his timing. You have not. 
He appoints the time of your death, of your birth. He says so. We participate. We have a limited free will participatory element. But he has governance. He sets the times. We observe time as it reveals itself through motion and changes. God, though, is the one who gave us the ability to think about time. And that's what I'm trying to get you to do. Think about time. What does it mean? Where did it come from? He gave us the consciousness, and we are using that consciousness to think about time. I watch my labs, two of them. I want to know if they're thinking about time. They are thinking about time. How do I know that? That's right. They have figured out what what day it is and when they get fed. And they know. And they come to me at that appointed time which I try to make longer and I try to delay it. as much. But they know it is 9.30 to 10.15, and when it's 10.14, we have a problem. And it's extraordinary. And they know the difference between Sunday and Monday. They can keep track of time. Now, they'll say, well, they're just watching you and figuring out time that way. Well, look at what you said. Why are they watching me? Where does his intellect come from, this consciousness that they have? It's amazing. Anyway, he gives us the awareness of time. He created our ability to know of time. Why did he do that? We have a time understanding. What's his point? We think, as as a last example, that death is inevitable over time. Are we right about that? Time is math. Does time cause death? Does math cause death? (laughs) I have contrarians here. I got mamas and the papas. (laughs) I've definitely wore out the subject today. Time is not physical. Is death a physical process? Yes, it is. We know about time. What we have to do is to know why time. That's what I want you to think about. Why time? Let me ask you this. Is time God? Is this something that is intrinsic to him? All of these time pieces, the sun, the moon, the tides, the seasons, the growth, aging, all of them, they're everywhere. Second law of thermodynamics, entropy. It's universal. Why do you do that? What is he trying to tell you? Next week, we will continue to absolutely torture you with this.